Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. Welcome to our weekly marriage hour here on Trending. We're going to unpack so much surrounding marriage, including a future saint I mentioned to you recently who's path to canonization has been opened and we're moving in that direction. She died just in the late 1990s. Her child is only about 26 years old, who after her life-saving decision, gave birth to a baby and died the next year. Why is this woman going to be a saint? What does this have to do with marriage? Well, there are incredible letters that she wrote back and forth with her husband, Carlo. And they are wisdom for the journey of marriage, but any vocation. You don't have to be married to join us during this marriage hour. We'll continue our virtue series on the cardinal virtue of fortitude today. We'll discuss everything from is acting in anger sinful? And we'll also unpack a lot having to do with fear and whether or not fear excuses us from sin. So stay tuned as we unpack so much more during our marriage hour. Joining me now today on the feast day of St. Padre Pio is the San Francisco Archdiocese Archbishop, Archbishop Salvador Cordelioni. And he has an incredible story having to do with St. Padre Pio and a family encounter that they had with this great saint. A little bit about St. Padre Pio, if you don't know much about him, he lived in the 20th century. He's known as a saint that defies so much of what we ponder, including gravity, not just as humans, but people of faith. We know that he had the stigmata. He's reported to have bilocated, levitated, and even healed by touch. He's also known to be an incredible confessor. And joining me now again is a San Francisco Archbishop, Archbishop Salvador Cordelioni, to share a little bit about your story, Archbishop, and your family story with this great St. Padre Pio when you were just a little boy. Yes, uh, thank you, Timory. Uh, yes, it was, um, I remember this well. My, my mother had been in and out of the hospital. She had, in those days, they called them growths on her vocal cords. I guess that meant they were cancerous tumors which um, would uh, they would operate and remove them, and then they would come back. That happened, I don't know, two or three times. So my mother was being, starting to get very worried. Her aunt and uncle, uh, that would be my grandmother's sister and her husband, were going to Italy, uh, and uh, they wanted to go to San Giovanni Rotondo, and they requested a, uh, a visit with Padre Pio, and uh, they told him the situation and asked him to pray for their niece. And he asked, uh, he asked them to send him a, a picture of her four children, so myself and my three siblings. And uh, they did, and uh, he prayed, and my mother's, um, the growths on the vocal cords went away, and they never came back after that. So I think there's a, a clear attribution to Padre Pio's intervention there to help my mother stay uh, healthy up to... Um, the day she died at 90 years old. 
What was the significance to you that he asked specifically for a photo of you four children, not just the mother? What does this have to do with motherhood and what kind of we see in our culture today? Well, being a well-formed mother, my mother's uh, utmost concern was her four children and what would happen if if she had to die and uh, who could step in to take care of us and provide for my father. So that was that was what was worrying her the most of all. And uh, so I would imagine that's the message that my my um, great aunt and great uncle conveyed uh, to Padre Pio. Uh, I sometimes wonder what he saw when he looked at that picture, um, if he had one of those moments of, of foresight. But uh, at any rate, that that's what he asked. And uh, he, he had a letter, he dictated a letter to his English-speaking secretary, an American woman who, who typed out a letter and then sent it back to my mother. Wow. Now, does your mom still have that letter? Have you seen it? I've seen it. You know, uh, pray. Now we need St. Anthony's intervention. My mother kept that letter safely guarded up until the day she died. Um, we can't find it now. We've scoured the house uh, that my parents lived in and we all grew up in and we can't find it. It's not where I thought she had left it. Uh, so, uh, But I do recall seeing the letter. Yes. So neat. My mom actually received a letter from St. Mother Teresa, and we do not have it because it was in the shuffling of the crisis pregnancy center that she had helped open. It had originally been with the center, and then a couple took one of the books with all of like kind of the history of the center. And in the process, the letter has gone missing. So I don't remember seeing it. I know that I was just a baby, but it's pretty incredible to have these encounters with the saints. I think so often, Archbishop, it's easy for us to think of the saints as so distant, so far off from us in our lives. But as you've just shared in your own life, there was a miracle that occurred within your own family with the healing of your mother through the intercession of the living St. Padre Pio, looking at a photo of you and three of your siblings and praying for your mother's healing. It's phenomenal. If you're just joining us now, it's a feast day of St. Padre Pio. And with me is a San Francisco Archbishop, Salvador Cordelioni. And we're talking about the healing of his mother um, after St. Padre Pio had been praying for her and the healing of the growths on her throat that ended up going away after multiple operations. They would come back. Now, how did this then lead you, Archbishop, to a special devotion, perhaps, to St. Padre Pio? Well, he was always, uh, you know, and I was aware of him growing up, um, but I, I be, be, uh, grew to be closer to him when I went to uh, to Rome to do my, first I did my seminary studies, and then I returned to do graduate studies there and saw the great devotion that uh, the Italian people have to him, uh, in which it's, maybe this is one of his miracles, how he could unite Italy. You know, Italy is very regional. There are just vast cultural differences between uh, from one region to another, especially the South and the North. You know, there's Sicily where my grandparents came from. There's Lombardy up in the North. Milan is the capital there. There's uh, Calabria, the tip of the boot. Puglia, where Padre Pio was from, which is the heel of the boot. And then there's the region up, say, Venice or Bologna. These vast differences. And uh, there's not... uh, now there's more in common, but uh, e- even the dialects are so different one from the other. But one thing I noticed, wherever I went in Italy, there was always a picture of Padre Pio. And all Italians have a great devotion to Padre Pio. So I saw how holiness can you know, unite people that might otherwise be divided among themselves. 
I remember when I first heard about St. Padre Pio, it was a little challenging for me to hear things such as, well, he bilocated and he levitated uh, and even healing by touch because we don't hear a ton about uh, physical healings in this way. Um, So immediate. How do we reconcile as people of faith when we hear stories about St. Padre Pio who lived in the 20th century, as you told the story, your own family's encounter with him, how do we kind of reconcile the closeness and time and proximity of the saint while also hearing things that are unthinkable in a sense to us? Yes, well, these are, are classic signs of, of holiness, of really a extreme advanced holiness. Uh, and Padre Pio seemed to have have all of those signs of bilocation and levitation and stigmata, um, being able to read people's souls, you know, so many stories about him as a confessor. Uh, he had all of those those qualities. And of course, that's not, that doesn't happen without great suffering. You know, it, it's only great suffering that can bring about such, uh, such great signs of holiness. You know, he died in in 1968, and so I was I was alive then, obviously, and uh, I remember how the world was changing so quickly and so radically in those years. And I think that God God must have given us this very special saint, uh, unique, really, with all those marks of holiness, right at a time when the world needs uh, a witness like that, and in time with this canonization to hold him up and uh, recognize his great holiness. We we certainly need his example and his, in his uh, intercession with what we're experiencing in the world nowadays. You're listening to Relevant Radio, trending with Timmy. We're with the San Francisco Archbishop, Salvador Corleone. Something that just stood out to me about what you said about St. Padre Pio and kind of rec- reconciling his bilocation, his levitation, all of these things that we hear that he's reported to have done and you mark it as a sign of holiness, but also the awe and the mystery of our faith um, and to have this sign of humanity so perfectly united to our Lord that this is what the human person was capable of. It makes me think in many ways about how the church in her wisdom over the last 100 years, 200 years, has made two proclamations about the Assumption of Our Lady and the Immaculate Conception, um, these things that have truly helped us, I think, to ponder Yet again, how important it is to see and have hope in humanity um, and the perfection of a human person through the grace of Jesus Christ. How has St. Padre Pio's life continued to unfold for you in a similar type of inspiration? I think about his, his, um, his steadfast uh, you know, fidelity. He was under you know, so much uh, scrutiny and um, silenced and, and uh, what I suppose nowadays we would consider harsh treatment, but I think it's a sign of how seriously the church takes these things and these investigations. But, uh, you know, he never, he never sought out to be a kind of a personality cult or, or, or a rebel or to make a name for himself. He accepted all with great patience and great faith. And, uh, and with so much cacophony in the world today and, and so much violence and people intolerance, people have for not getting their own way. Uh, here is a man of such profound holiness and, and deep insight uh, who um, had to go through this kind of treatment so the church could ascertain that this was authentic and he was not a fake. Uh, 
but uh, you know the truth uh, wins out so uh, we need to imitate that virtue because it's when we know the truth and we uh, live it with virtue that's how we grow in wisdom and and grow in holiness when a saint is canonized so recent to their death but also in the 21st century it always makes me wonder and i'd love to hear your thoughts how do you believe St. Padre Pio relates to what's going on in the church today and what we face in society, especially with the hostility toward Catholicism? Yes, that was all, that was all changing, beginning to change right at the, the time that he died. And uh, how does it relate to today? Well, the church has, I think it's been going through this for a long time, and it was going through it at the time that he was alive seems to be getting more intense. But again, Padre Pio followed the path of, of humility, of prayer and, and fidelity, uh, despite how radically things were changing. And things were changing in Italy too then. Um, so there certainly was a much stronger Catholic culture then than now, but things were changing then also. Uh, but he did not lose sight of, of his love for our Lord. And you mentioned the two uh, Marian uh, dogmas that have been proclaimed infallible by, uh, by an ex-Cathedra statement of, of the Holy Father, that she is our model and, and uh, image of what God intends for humanity. And if we follow that path of holiness, then we share in that glorification of our Lord. That's Archbishop Salvador Cordelioni here on Trending with Timurie discussing St. Padre Pio and the incredible encounter his own family had with the living saint before he died. Archbishop, thank you so much for joining us. We are following your great work, your profound, prophetic, and bold voice in calling upon our national leaders to stand for their Catholic faith and the pro-life position. So thank you for being an incredible witness for life. And if you haven't already, please follow the Archbishop on Twitter. We'll tag him on Twitter. You can follow us at Timmery, that's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E, to connect with the Bishop. And also the incredible work that he's doing at the Benedict Institute. That's benedictinstitute.org for sacred music and divine worship. We'll be right back here on Trending Diving into our marriage hour, discussing everything from a future saint, perhaps, and her letters to her husband. She died just in the 1990s. What can this teach us about our own marriages, our own call to holiness, no matter our state in life? We'll also continue our virtue series on the virtue of fortitude. We'll discuss whether it's okay to act out of anger and whether or not fear excuses us from sin. You're listening to Trending with Timory. Head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending to subscribe to the podcast and share this great episode with others. Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. You're joining us here on Trending. We're going to unpack, continue to unpack the virtue of fortitude as we continue our virtue series is using anger sinful and does fear excuse us from our sins? We'll also dive into some important pro-life news, lots of prayers leading into tomorrow, and discuss the incredible letters between who may be a future saint and her husband who died just in the 1990s. But before we go there, I had a really awkward question asked of me 
this past week. And I thought, oh man, I don't even know if I want to talk about this. And I went, you know what? No, this is an important marriage question. We will go there. And I spent a lot of time really pondering this question. And I'm I'm waiting for it. I think that a lot of women are going to have their hackles up raised over this question. Um, because it's a really, I think, tough topic. A uh, husband actually wrote to me, wrote an email to me. Tony wrote me an email. And he's basically asking how to approach his wife on the topic of modesty with the wisdom of the church. And he's posing concern about extremely revealing clothing that is a norm in terms of her wardrobe. And I went, oof, oof, that's a tough one. I don't know if he's approached her before. I'm just telling you what I've got from the email. So, Tony, if you're listening, I hope that I get to hear a follow-up on how this goes. Uh, and maybe you have a piece of advice. Number is 1-888-914-9149. I'm always hesitant when it comes to the topic of modesty. Because let's be real, honestly, I think for many of us women, it's one of those topics that can be the most enraging Here's the deal. And maybe you're mad right now. You're like, how dare this husband want to talk to his own wife about modesty and tell her how to dress? But on the other end, I know this woman, another woman in my own life, whose husband insisted that his wife wear super skimpy clothing. However, and she's a mom of multiple kids. However, he was insistent that their child, their daughter, wore incredibly modest clothing. And so he had an ethic in terms of what he believed was appropriate for girls to wear and to not exploit your child, but he was willing to exploit his wife. So we've got both ends of the spectrum. On one side, a husband who's saying, I would like my wife to be more modest. What she's wearing is too revealing. I'm not okay with it. On the other side, husband who knows, you know, how men think, knows what is the best way to clothe and give respect to the body, but wants his wife, I'll just say it, to look super hot for him. Where's the balance? What do you do? Okay, if you are listening, ladies, I will say it for you. As a woman, I really do not want anyone to tell me how to dress, nor do I actually welcome someone telling me how to dress. And you know, this might sound crazy. Even our husbands. And you think about it. Now, Grant, I think that this is not a topic that I've ever had an issue with my husband. By the way, my husband's great. He will literally buy me clothes and he buys like beautiful, gorgeous pieces of clothing. I'm very, very blessed. So here's the reality. Tony, here are my thoughts. I think there's a lot that can be said here. We have to understand, first and foremost, that we women are under a tremendous amount of of pressure when it comes to how we look. Unrealistic beauty standards. High cut, low cut, crop top. Affordability. Clothing can be extremely difficult. Then you add different body shapes and certain clothes made for particular body shapes. You add longer legs. Something that could look modest on one person could look totally immodest on another person. And then us women can, in the midst of trying to find our own fashion statement, the fashion we like, but what we're confident and comfortable in, there are many struggles from our pride toward being sensitive, toward judging ourselves and being critical of others and their appearances. As I mentioned already, the cultural 
pressure. And I think that there's often for a lot of us women at different points in our lives, there's this casting off of our own conscience when it comes to our clothing or even the opinions and guidelines of others. To the point where I think a lot of women have tuned it out or just enraged to even hear anything because of the pressure, the discomfort, and all of these things that are firing at them. Imagine what it's like to deal with clothing today. And then to also feel the pressure, and I know some men feel this as well to update their wardrobe, but there's also this constant pressure that I really need new clothes all the time to look relevant, to look fresh, to feel confident. Sometimes there's nothing like a new pair of shoes, a new dress, even if a dress is form-fitting or whatever it is, to make us feel good about ourselves. You see, beauty is so inherently written into who we are as women. And so I think we have to understand the complexity, the sensitivity, and at the end of the day, the desire that all of us women have to be loved, and to know that we are beautiful based on the response of our loved ones. So all of this being said, Tony, how do you talk to your wife about dressing more modestly? My prayers are with you. I think it needs to be a very delicate conversation. Now, the God-given leadership role of a husband and father within the home is men, you have a God-given role to be the leaders, protectors, and providers of your home. And I want to encourage you in confidence in this. But I also want to encourage you not to be prudish, to be prudent, to be generous, and to also understand that there might be a larger complex situation going on for your bride in terms of the types of clothes she's wearing. So I think the first thing to do is to really make sure that we're checking ourselves and making sure that we're not being judgmental in any conversation surrounding modesty. Second, I mean, I have kind of an approach you can take to address this because, and I give this approach for one particular reason. Many times we as women dress in a particular way because we're either trying to meet a standard, trying to get attention, trying to feel good about ourselves, or any number of complex things that are literally like usually eating our brains alive. And then also add different states in life. And sometimes, you know, things just don't stay in the right place depending on how active you are in terms of what you're doing. And sometimes you need new clothes to adjust to the state in life you're in, but then you're trying not to break the budget by buying more clothing. So start with this. Depending on what your spouse needs and why this person may or may not be dressing modestly. Start by complimenting your spouse. For a whole month, start on complimenting your spouse in a way that helps her to understand that she is one loved and be beautiful. And see after a month how things change. Compliment her when she has no makeup on. And of course, these need to be genuine compliments. Compliment her when she is in her pajamas. Compliment her when she rolls out of bed in the morning. If she's anything like me, she's because I've got curly, wavy-ish hair. I've got like a rat's nest, puffy eyes, really wild-looking clothing that doesn't match whatsoever. Compliment to show your love and the affection you have for her beauty as well. And see if anything changes after a month. Because for many of us, we need to know that we're loved. We need to know that we're beautiful. And we need to have the attention that is necessary. 
I'm not calling us women needy. And if anyone calls us needy, gentlemen, you have a whole lot of things that you need from us wives and we could flip the tables here. This is just part of what's deep down in our being and necessity. There's, and by the way, anyone listening, gentlemen, you want to know your wives a little bit better? There's an incredible book. It's titled For Men Only, What You Need to Know About the Inner Lives of Women. It's a small little book, short chapters, mind-blowing. There's one for women about men. So ladies, if you want to know about the inner lives of men, you've got to read the book. Again, Chantel felt Oh my gosh, I just forgot her name. But she and her husband um, co-wrote one of them. And then it's very, very helpful to understand. I read this not long after I got married. And I remember coming to my husband with this book, like, do you really think this way? Like, explain to me better this visual, visual dimension of how you think. Feldhahn. Feldhahn is her last name. Shanti Feldhahn. Incredible content, well-researched, and very well-delivered. It will help your marriage or help your dating relationships or just help you in your dating game. Everyone should read this to understand the opposite sex. Okay, so number two, I said, so number one, check yourself. Number two, compliment Compliment, compliment, to give affirmation, love, and to show that your spouse is beautiful. Number three, offer to buy your spouse new clothes. And maybe you can make the agreement that you as a husband have the veto. So she can say, hey, these are the things I like. And maybe you can say, hey, can we agree that I'd like to buy you new clothes? Hey, maybe you can even put no cap or really big cap on the budget or maybe help save to make this a thing. But say, hey, I'd like to have veto in terms of what you wear. Now, that might be something to consider or maybe there are other ways that this can be worked out. But if modesty is a big issue, maybe there's a middle ground that could be found. Okay, number four. And again, I've been saying this all along, but understand your wife's need to be loved and to believe she's beautiful based on the compliments that you give her. We need to know as women that we're admired. And this is where really, I think as a husband, your focus should be in addressing any self-esteem issues, modesty issues for whether it's your wife or even your female daughters. This is all really important, especially with the pressure that we're under. And then from there, maybe it continues to not work out. Maybe you need to work on communication and working through Sharing, you know, it would mean a lot to me if you consider not wearing X. Maybe they're just a couple of pieces of clothing. But you have to be prepared for that why. And you have to be able to explain and articulate that why well. Maybe it has to do with the pornographic culture. I, I have a friend whose boyfriend told her when they were out on a date, I really, can you put your sweater on? I really don't like other guys looking down my girlfriend's back of her shirt. Wearing a beautiful piece of clothing, but he just was like, you know what? I really don't like that your, your back looks so nice in that shirt that other people are literally looking down the back of your shirt because you look so good. And he wasn't saying that like you looked bad. He was just like, I really don't want other people looking at my girlfriend like a piece of meat. And maybe he himself was trying not to objectify her, I'd hope, and not look at her like a piece of meat. 
And so those are kind of things to help us understand because we women, those books I just recommended from Shanti Felton are so helpful because what I learned in the book for women about the inner lives of men is truly how visual men are. Now, Grant, that shouldn't be forcing us into a certain type of clothing. I don't think we should be looked at as women as being the cause of a man's lust. I think that's problematic. We should more so be dressing for honoring our own bodies and, of course, not trying to lead someone else into a near occasion of sin. But I think modesty, first and foremost, has to do with the honor, love, and respect we show our own bodies. So, in a great question, if you want to get those books, Feldhahn, Shanti Feldhahn, her last name is F-E-L-D-H-A-H-N. Just to review and to emphasize this, it's so important that we're coming back to understanding how important it is for your wives, gentlemen, your daughters, the women in your life to know they are loved, beautiful, and admired in this. It's so important for us as women. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio during our weekly marriage hour every Thursday, having to do with everything from dating relationships toward marriage and seasoned marriage. One piece of very exciting news that was received today, there's actually a 40 Days for Life campaign, not only in your local neighborhood at your local abortion clinic, most likely. You can find that at 40daysforlife.com. That's number 40daysforlife.com. And sign up to pray and fast run into abortion and actually pray in front of the abortion clinic. But here's the news. There's actually a 40 Days for Life campaign occurring in Uganda, not even just here in the United States. They're all over Europe, across the world. But in Uganda, a baby was saved from a late-term abortion. Isn't that incredible? Now, I want to encourage you. I was out there at our local abortion clinic, and it had been a little while since I was out last out after having had the baby and moved and everything that's happened in our life. Really, I felt bad for not going out sooner because the reality is, is that day after day, there are babies and their mothers walking into that abortion clinic. And sometimes no one's there to pray, to intervene, or just stand there so that someone knows that they are cared for so much that someone's taking time out of the middle of their day, on a weekend, on, in the middle of their workday, to be there and pray. At the abortion clinic I was praying at yesterday, one woman came out and spoke for quite a while to some of the counselors there. She was in tears. I don't know. If she stayed at Planned Parenthood or if she left. I don't know what the outcome of her baby is, but at least she knew people were there and she had more information about the precious life of her child and also the long-term impact that abortion could have on her. So I want to encourage you and ask you to sign up for a 40 Days for Life campaign near you. Perhaps you can take just one hour a week in front of the abortion clinic. Go with a friend, even if you go for the first time, and call me if this is your first time out there. I'd love to hear from you. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. If you have questions about what it's like to be in front of an abortion clinic, you're nervous, I'd love to dispel them. Give me a call. I'm happy to answer your questions. Numbers 1-888-914-9149. I'll be right back as we continue to unpack more wisdom coming from perhaps a future saint in love letters she wrote to her husband and what we can learn from them in any vocation, not just marriage. Also, we'll continue our virtue series on the virtue of fortitude. I'll be right back. 
So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Maria Cristina Mochelin, will she be a saint right now? She is officially a servant of God, which means she is in the path. Her cause for canonization, beatification, all of that is being pushed forward as of this week by Pope Francis. She may be one of our next official Italian saints. Uh, She's already recognized as someone of extreme holiness as her cause for being officially proclaimed a saint in the church is being worked on. Maria Cristina Mochelin died not that long ago. It's actually really, really fascinating. She died in the mid-1990s, one year after giving birth to her son. Her son, while she, so she ended up having um, cancer when she was just at a teenager, about 18, 19 years old. The cancer went away. They were able to take care of everything. She married her high school sweetheart, Carlo. They went on to have two children. But when she was pregnant with her third child, the cancer returned. Now, she denied any sort of chemotherapy or cancer treatment that would put her child in harm's way while pregnant. She forewent the treatment until after the baby was born. Now, by the time the baby was born, the cancer had actually already spread to her lungs. I shared a lot about her story this week on the show, but what I want to discuss today during our weekly marriage hour every Thursday, everything related from dating, relationships, marriage, season marriage, is some of the incredible fruit that we can find in Servant of God Maria Cristina Mochelin's letters to her husband, Carlo, which, by the way, her husband, Carlo, is, like, totally young still. I think he's in, like, his 50s, and this is really, really cool. Her husband, I mean, it just is mind-blowing. Her husband's, like, around my parents' same age. Their kid, their kid, Ricardo, who she forewent any chemotherapy so that he would not have any harm done to him, while in utero, is like one year older than my sister whose birthday we just celebrated this week. I mean, this is just so cool. He's just about 26 years old. And so to see another modern day saint, I had the opportunity about four or five years ago to meet St. Gianna's daughter, the daughter who, very similar story, also an Italian saint, uh, forwent medical treatment that would have harmed her daughter, Uh, potentially. Um, And she continued forward with a pregnancy when she was struggling in her pregnancy, and she ended up dying after giving birth to her baby. And and her daughter, it's so cool. I've gotten to meet her daughter, who's also named Gianna. And so, and all of this was so, so neat to experience because it's like, I'm touching, like, I don't know if you technically, I don't think it counts, but like, she's a, a walking relic. Why? Because she knew, I mean, she touched a saint, her mom. It was really cool. So this is the same thing with Maria Cristina Mochelin. Now, Maria Cristina Mochelin, and this is incredible. There are love letters, letters between her and her husband, Carlo. Now, let me read to you a little bit from these letters, and let's piece them apart a little bit. She said, I became holy to the extent that I empty myself of everything. Should I become holy to the extent that I empty myself of everything? So she's writing back and forth to her husband, Carlo. She's saying, I only become holy to the extent that I empty myself of everything. 
what she has verbalized here is what's known as kenosis. Kenosis is a fancy theological word that has to do with this total outpouring of self, this emptying of self to make a gift of self toward others. We've heard the passage of scripture before, I must increase so that he must de- I must decrease so that he must increase. That what I am, my desires, my pride, my sin, all of this must be tempered so that our Lord Jesus Christ cannot just dwell in me when I receive him in the Eucharist, but that he might consume me, that he might transform me, that there might be this pouring out of myself this indwelling of God so that then God can be poured out in the lives of others. This is what makes saints. And so Maria Cristina Mocellin, a future Italian saint perhaps, as her cause for canonization is moved forward, said in a letter to her husband, I remove every impediment from my mind, heart, and life to allow myself to be completely penetrated by the love of God. So she recognized that in order to be fully filled up by God, to be penetrated, all consumed. I keep thinking of St. Teresa of Avila in her ecstasy. There's a beautiful piece of artwork depicting this. You can look it up online. That she's just in this ecstasy. She's so filled and inspired by our Lord and his presence in her life. This is what we're working toward. This union that is so profound that it transforms yourself. I think this is one of the gifts of the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ prior to his death. That we could see the transforming union of the man-God, fully man and fully God. That he could be fully consumed by the divine presence. And God, too, is offering his own life to us. I mean, how do we know this? Well, for one, he said, eat my body and drink my blood. And we're called to do this every single Sunday at Mass. But here's something more that Maria Cristina Mocellin said in the letter to her husband, Carlo. She gives a concrete example of how she can remove every impediment in order to be penetrated by the love of God. I love this concrete example. She says, more concretely, it means living everyday life with great simplicity in the family, in the study, in the relationship with you, Carlo. And then she goes on to say this, my place is in the simple and routine. This is something I really take to heart, especially as a wife and a mother. So many moments of our day and even moments of our night can be taken up with a simple, quick couple of hours that go by so quickly. I don't know where the time goes sometimes. And we're being reminded that by an emptying of ourselves and seeing the simplicity of how God can penetrate our lives, transform what can seemingly be the mundane, the exhausting, and even moments of resentment, perhaps. Regret, lost dreams, sick of cooking, overwhelmed by laundry, exhausted from all of the work and the errands and the coming and going. 
that this woman is on the path to being proclaimed a saint of the church. Why? Because she saw that the path to her holiness would only be through the sanctification of those simple moments throughout the day. As she said, this is lived more concretely in everyday life with great simplicity, in the family, in the study, in the relationship with you, Carlo, that is her husband. And let's take more seriously this last line. She says, my place is in the simple and routine. Maybe you're struggling with the mundane, with the repetition, with the isolation perhaps, or just the isolation that comes with starting and having a family and being more present and more, a little more exclusive with your immediate family unit. That in those moments, in ordinary life, by extraordinary love, God can transform us and call us to be saints just as he has called Maria Cristina Mochelain, who only died about 25 years ago. You're listening to Trending with Timory here on Relevant Radio. If you missed it, it is a feast day of St. Padre Pio. And earlier in the episode, you're going to have to listen to the podcast if you didn't catch it. Our very own Archbishop Cordelione of the Archdiocese of San Francisco joined us to share his personal story that his family had when they encountered the great St. Padre Pio before his death and they asked for his prayer intercession. You'll have to listen. It's an incredible miracle, profound story about a modern day saint just of the 20th century who knew people who are heads of our church today. It's pretty incredible. So be sure to head over to relevantradio.com forward slash trending to subscribe. Continuing on in our virtue series here on trending, we've been working through the virtue of fortitude. Now, a really simple definition of fortitude would be this idea of acting in the face of fear in the face of fear, even in the face of death, in death might be in front of us, confronting death, but also has to do with acting in the face of fear to the point of death, but acting in the face of perceived difficulties in our lives that get in the way from us actually doing what is reasonable, moral, and just. Now, with this, it brings up a couple of interesting issues. One of them is having to do with courage, because people who act with fortitude, that is being willing to act even when there's fear, overcoming that fear, and even being willing to act to the point of death, that requires bravery. And for some people, for example, we were just talking about the issue of abortion. That bravery might be in part utilizing various emotions. One of those emotions could be anger. So the question at hand that we're turning to St. Thomas Aquinas and the wisdom of the church to answer is, is using anger sinful? Well, did you know that anger isn't always sinful? Anger in and of itself isn't sinful or not. It's what we do with our anger. Because remember, anger is an emotion. It's a passion that we experience. So St. Thomas Aquinas actually says that virtuous people, and remember this is our goal, He says, virtuous people should employ both anger and the other passions of the soul, but, get the but, I'm throwing the but in, they must be, listen to this, he says, modified by the dictate of reason. So in other words, 
Let's say that my anger about the injustice of abortion is what inspired me to start speaking on national radio about what's wrong with abortion. That's actually my story. I was angry. I didn't like what abortion was doing toward women. It, It hurts women and it kills babies. Now, that said, that could be an example, just one coming to mind because we're talking about these important bills and contacting legislators to prevent this terrible Women's Health Protection Act from becoming law of the land. You see, anger can be used justly, righteously, if it, with all the other passions that can come and go, falls under the direction of reason. The dictate of reason, as St. Thomas Aquinas says, that any passion we take into a decision, into an action, it must come under the command of reason. It must submit to reason, essentially. I think that's one important way for us to think about. Now, let's be real here. I don't know about you, but I know most of the time my angry actions that are inspired by anger are usually not reasonable. They're usually not courageous. They may be they may be bold, but they're usually reactionary and they're usually sinful. And sometimes unfortunately it's my anger that can lead me to say in particular things that I shouldn't usually say. And let's be real, you're joining us during our weekly marriage hour here on Trending. This especially occurs within the context of marriage when we're really angry. Remember what happens when this passion occurs. Our heart rate, our blood pressure, our pulse, all of these things can go off the charts. We can start to get really hot and red and heated and overwhelmed. And if we don't put ourselves in check, if we don't allow our emotions, our passions, and even the bodily experience of anger to submit to reason, well then, yes, our actions can be sinful. But if we're taking our anger and we're submitting it to reason, then anger isn't necessarily sinful when we have it as part of our action. And this is very important for us to understand, especially as we're discussing courage, fortitude, and growing in virtue. There's one other thing, though, I do want to touch on, and that is, does fear excuse us from sin? This is a really great question. Does fear excuse us from sin? That is where someone's afraid, therefore, they do something disagreeable because of that. Well, this is a great question. I think that we have to really understand that fear in the spiritual life really can often have to do with the despair that we experience. Now, whether or not an action is sinful because we acted out of fear really depends on whether or not we're acting voluntarily. So are we voluntarily acting when we're afraid or are we doing it by choice? If we do it by choice and we sin, that's wrong if we're doing things out of fear. But if we're doing things because we don't know, it's not intentional, well, that is not sinful.